You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. And you will, and you will become a member of the U.S. Supreme Court. That was Senator Patrick Leahy telling Supreme Court nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson that no matter the ordeal of her nomination hearings, where Republican senators have barraged her with attacks centering on crime and race, she will be confirmed to be the first black woman to be a Supreme Court justice because the Democrats have the votes. Here's Judge Jackson on what she'll bring to the court. What I would hope to bring to the Supreme Court um, is very similar to what uh, 115 other justices have brought, which is their life experiences, their perspectives. And mine include being a trial judge, being an appellate judge, being a public defender, being a member of the Sentencing Commission. Um, in addition to my being a black woman, uh, lucky inheritor of the civil rights dream. Joining me is Adam Winkler, a professor at UCLA Law School. Start by, in general, giving me your opinion of Judge Jackson and how she will, how she would fare as the next Supreme Court justice. Well, there seems to be no doubt that Judge Brown Jackson is a very well-qualified nominee to the Supreme Court. Uh, She has a lot of judicial experience. She brings a diversity, not just in terms of her racial identity, but also in terms of her perspective, having been on the Sentencing Commission, having been a public defender. We've never had a public defender on uh, the Supreme Court. In other ways, she's very much a standard candidate for the Supreme Court in the sense that she comes from a background of being a judge primarily in recent years from the district court and then onto the D.C. Circuit and comes from Harvard Law School, like so many justices these days come from the very, very top law schools. So she meets the traditional requirements, but also has some elements of her past that give her a slightly different perspective. In her opening statement, she referred to her nomination as historic and said that she would be a fair and neutral arbiter. What did you see in her opening statement and what she addressed about her role as a judge? 
Well, I think what we see in her opening statement is what we see from so many Supreme Court nominees lately, which is kind of very uncontroversial statements that they will be neutral arbiters, uh, as uh, Chief Justice John Roberts said in his confirmation hearings, just an umpire calling balls and strikes. The truth is we all know that judges really do approach cases with their values and philosophy, influenced and informed by their own experiences, and the sort of anodyne perspective on what judging is, just a neutral arbiter, almost like a machine that you can just put in information and get the right answer out of, seems to be what senators want these days, but certainly doesn't accurately describe what any justice will do, either Justice Jackson or any other. Yeah, the Republicans seem to be looking to get her judicial philosophy. Now, I don't know if they're referring to, is she a textualist or something else? Would a Supreme Court nominee explain their judicial philosophy that way? Have the textualists done that in the past? Well, we have had justices in the past who've described their judicial philosophy as originalists or textualists. But the truth of the matter is uh, that justices and their nominees do not want to get into their philosophies of how they are going to decide cases with any kind of specificity, lest they lose political support. It is one of the, these things where, in the confirmation hearings, if you have something controversial to say, your best bet is just not to say it at all and hope that you have the votes to get through nonetheless. Given uh, Judge Jackson's incredible background and clear qualifications, barring any kind of obvious misstep, uh, saying something very controversial and unnecessary in these hearings, she seems certain to be confirmed. So there's really no gain for justices to get in, at least in depth, in their philosophy, if it might cost them a vote. Republicans are using this soft-on-crime attack sort of as a way also of attacking President Biden's commitment to law and order. Will that work for them in her case? Well, I guess it depends what you mean, June, by work for them. I think in the sense that they're not really going to derail this nomination. I don't think they think they're going to derail this nomination. I think what works for them is using these confirmation hearings as an opportunity to make political speeches, to get your 10 minutes of quotes in the various advertisements and Fox News and promoted by the local political party on Twitter or whatnot, uh, and really not about uh, examining the experiences, perspectives, and philosophies of the nominees. Uh, and so we see that over and over again. And it's frankly, it's not just a Republican thing. It's a Democratic thing, too. We saw that in the, with regards to the Trump nominees to the Supreme Court, that Democrats were trying to tie the nominee to the policies of the Trump administration. Uh, this is basically what the confirmation hearings have become, basically forums for senators to make political speeches that relate or not relate, depending on the particular question, to the nominee at hand. So the Republicans, one after the other, said they weren't going to make this a controversial hearing. They weren't going to attack her as as some of their nominees have been attacked. And yet, Senator Josh Hawley started a Twitter storm last week that criticized her sentencing of defendants convicted of the possession of child pornography. Does that seem to be a personal attack? Well, we are seeing attacks on her character and on her background, uh, often sometimes scurrilous attacks. I think Marsha Blackburn, the senator, uh, on Monday accused Judge Jackson of a whole bunch of things that uh, were based on sort of scurrilous accusations, quotes taken out of context, 
putting at her feet responsibility for things like transgender rights, even though she's never ruled on a transgender rights case in any way. And so uh, we do see these kinds of attacks because uh, this sort of plays to the political base. Even though Republicans said they're not going to attack her personally, of course they're going to attack her and are attacking her. It's true they're not commenting on her history of sexual assault like a previous nominee, but uh, that's because there are no credible allegations of such things. The Republicans keep on bringing up the Kavanaugh hearings. They seem to be forgetting the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, which, as I recall, were a pretty restrained affair. That's right. And we often see Republicans hearkening back to the Judge Bork hearings without talking about any of the other Republican justices around that same time who did get through without the kind of questioning uh, that uh, Robert Bork had. It is true that it seems that more and more senators want to use their opportunity to question a nominee to sort of relitigate past confirmation battles, and even in ways that aren't, aren't accurate. Uh, Amy Comey Barrett was never asked about her faith in her Supreme Court nomination process. She had been asked about it in a previous confirmation process for a different position, but not in her Supreme Court justice uh, confirmation process. But Lindsey Graham asked of the faith of Judge Jackson, uh, showing a, a kind of a willingness to make accusations, but yet do the exact same thing you accuse the others of doing. He also asked, how faithful are you on a scale of one to 10? And of course, she didn't answer that. But I thought that was a strange question at a judiciary hearing. It does seem like a strange question. And what does it really mean? Are you full of faith to God or are you faithful to your spouse? Like what what exactly is Lindsey Graham getting at? It's not really clear. But again, one thing that uh, is clear is that the confirmation process is broken. And the truth is it's been broken for a long time. And maybe we shouldn't expect more given its history. You know, the first confirmation hearings for a Supreme Court justice came after the nomination of Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish person who was nominated for the Supreme Court. And it was clearly a reflection of a fear of this sort of Jewish radicalism. And then confirmation hearings didn't really ratchet up and involve the, the participation of the nominee himself, really until after Brown versus Board of Education, 1955, when John M. Harlan was nominated at the Supreme Court. All of a sudden now, senators like Strom Thurmond wanted to have questioning of the nominee and to make sure they had the proper judicial philosophy. So we've often seen the confirmation hearings be an effort by political coalitions to try to retain and keep control of the Supreme Court. Except for the Kavanaugh hearings where the accusations of sexual misconduct were raised during the hearings, have any of these hearings elucidated something new about the candidate? Or is it usually just everything we know being talked about over and over? Well, I do think that candidates have been trained not to say anything, that the system has been designed by presidents and their political parties and uh, their advisors to just get through. And if you've got the votes going in, then don't say anything controversial and don't say anything that could get you in trouble. That's sort of one of the lessons that has seemed to have come out of the confirmation process in recent years. And uh, as the confirmation of a justice becomes just another partisan issue in American political life, one that divides deeply different coalitions and makes it very hard for people to cross party lines, really, we shouldn't really expect uh, anything more. How important is it that she get some Republican votes, or at least one Republican vote? 
I don't think it really matters very much. I don't think that uh, if she gets one or two Republican votes, it all of a sudden means that her nomination was one that satisfied the conservative movement or the Republican Party. And it certainly won't show that um, the Republican Party is willing to bend on judicial nominees uh, of the Democrats simply because one or two people might vote in her favor. Um, She is clearly an eminently qualified uh, candidate. And uh, just as Republicans have been able to get their candidates through pretty consistently um, uh, in the Supreme Court confirmation process, I imagine that she'll get through with maybe exclusively Democratic votes, maybe one or two Republicans. The only thing I hope that comes out of it is that we don't see a nominee who finds that because of the process, they are changed, that they become a different person than they might otherwise be. It's sometimes said that Clarence Thomas became very bitter after his confirmation hearing and hardened his views on some issues. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's been said. And certainly there was concern after Brett Kavanaugh railed against Democrats for their attack on him in the confirmation hearings, promising payback, which raised questions about whether as a justice he would be motivated by a desire for revenge in these kinds of confirmation hearings. If so, it shows one of the dangers of having this very highly politicized process. Thanks for being on the show, Adam. That's Professor Adam Winkler of UCLA Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This week, the Supreme Court considered whether a group of 500 Taco Bell employees had to arbitrate overtime claims against a Taco Bell franchise rather than press them in federal court. The case centers on the waiver of rights by failing to promptly invoke arbitration early in litigation. The Taco Bell employees say they've been cheated out of overtime pay by Sundance, the company that owns about 150 Taco Bell franchises. 
The case proceeded in federal court for nearly eight months before the company invoked an arbitration provision in its standard form employment contract. Confusion seemed to reign during the oral arguments, although Justice Stephen Breyer seemed to best explain the controversy. I mean, you had an arbitration agreement. So what you decided to do is bring a lawsuit. And nobody said anything further for quite a while. And then finally, the other side said, let's go to arbitration. And were they too late? Now, that kind of situation, I bet, arises fairly frequently. Okay. Now, we're starting to create a matrix of rules through your logic. It is so complicated <laughs> that, that, that it's at least hard for a layperson like me in this area to understand. And, and what's worrying me is that my instinctive answer, which you'll tell me is wrong if it's wrong, is it depends. My guest is Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein. Yeah. First of all, tell us why Taco Bell's being sued. Yeah, so this is a labor case where the plaintiff alleges a violation of uh, wage and hour law. And it's a case that was related to a second case by a different employee in a different state also against the same company, Sundance, for violating the wage and hour laws in Michigan. So the Iowa case that's in front of the Supreme Court now was related to the Michigan case brought by a, a different employee, both of whom alleged wage and hour law violations. And what's the basic issue in the case? So the question in the case, as I understand it, although I have to confess after listening to the to the argument. I'm not sure that anyone understands it, but the question in the case is whether a court can require either party to an arbitration agreement to demonstrate prejudice to the other party if the party was seeking to compel arbitration. In this case, it was Taco Bell. It was Sundance. If, if the party seeking to compel arbitration has waived its right to do so, by participating in uh, litigation in court before asking that the matter be referred to arbitration. And so in this case, just briefly, because the proceedings get confusing, but briefly describe what happened to make the plaintiffs say that Taco Bell had engaged in litigation beforehand. Sure. So Morgan files a complaint and says that Sundance has engaged in this uh, wage and hour violation. Sundance answers the complaint, does not assert the arbitration agreement that is in uh, Morgan's employment contract. And the case proceeds. It gets coordinated with the case in Michigan by Wood, also a wage and hour case, where Sundance was the defendant. And like they did with Morgan, they didn't assert any arbitration agreement in their answer in the Wood case either. Both cases were sent off to mediation where Wood settled the case that was pending in Michigan. The Morgan case, the case that's now in front of the Supreme Court, went back to Iowa where the defendant, Sundance, then, after an unsuccessful attempt to mediate a settlement, then tried to compel arbitration under Morgan's employment agreement. And Morgan says, well, wait a minute. You waived that right by not asserting it sooner and by invoking the litigation mechanism. It's too late for you to insist on arbitration now. 
And that has led to the dispute that the Supreme Court now has in front of it. The district court agreed with Morgan that Sundance waived the arbitration provision, but the Sixth Circuit disagreed and said no. Morgan failed to demonstrate any prejudice, and therefore no waiver had taken place. And Morgan's answer is, well, wait a minute. Nobody else has to show prejudice in the case of waiver. Why are we treating arbitration agreements different than any other kind of contractual agreement where prejudice isn't required to demonstrate waiver? And that's the issue that presumably the Supreme Court was going to decide. So, Mark, are the circuits split on whether or not prejudice is required here? There is disagreement about whether prejudice can be required or not. And so the the principle that the court should have, in my view, should have considered is whether requiring prejudice to show waiver in the context of an arbitration agreement treats arbitration agreements differently than all other agreements. That would be a violation of Section 2 of the Federal Arbitration Act, which essentially requires that arbitration agreements be on equal footing with all other contracts. This places arbitration agreements in a preferred status because it imposes an additional requirement on a party trying to show that the agreement was waived. The Supreme Court arguments, the justices were talking about state law versus federal law, about whether the arbitration agreement is valid and enforceable. I mean, did you get any feeling after the arguments (laughs) of what they were concerned about? I honestly had a feeling throughout the entire argument of being Alice in Wonderland because the entire premise of the argument was that arbitration agreements have to be on equal footing with all other agreements except when they don't. And then we went into this whole discussion about whether Section 3 of the FAA, which says that any party may compel arbitration if that party is not in default of something, it doesn't say what, and the court then tried to figure out what that meant. And, you know, I was thinking to myself, why why are they isolating Section 2 and Section 3 as though those provisions should be read separately and independently? And, and I kept thinking, so if I'm driving down the highway and I get pulled over for speeding, you know, the law requires that I observe the speed limits, and it also requires that I use a turn signal when I change from one lane to another lane. I have to do both. And so if I get pulled over for speeding, I can't say to the judge who hears my case, but I use my turn signal. I use my turn signal. I have to satisfy both requirements. And it seems to me that the court and the parties tried to split this up piecemeal And we lost sight of the whole issue, which I think is, you know, it's just a simple question. Did Sundance knowingly and intentionally manifest an intention to abandon its right to insist on arbitration? If it did that, that ends the question. If it didn't do that, then the party should be sent to arbitration. The argument got so complicated and so convoluted. I don't know that anyone can understand it now. Where does prejudice fit into to what you say the issue is? So some states, and New York is one of them, some states say that in order to demonstrate waiver of any contractual right, there must be a clear manifestation of an intent by the party who 
is waiving the right to relinquish a known right. But in the arbitration context, New York says, like many other states do, that the Federal Arbitration Act also requires prejudice to the party opposing arbitration before an arbitration clause may be waived. So there's this special layer of proof that's put on a party to show that an arbitration clause has been waived that doesn't exist in any other contract where one party is claiming that the other party has waived a, a contractual right. And that's that's really the, the gist of the dispute. Which way do you think it should come out? I think that if Section 2 of the uh, FAA means that arbitration agreements have to be interpreted on equal footing with all other contracts, that the prejudice requirement should apply if state law applies that to all contract rights. So if, if a state law says that to demonstrate waiver of a contractual right, a party has to show two things. First, a clear intention on the part of the party that's waiving the right to intentionally and deliberately waive a known right, and also must show that the party asserting waiver has been prejudiced, then fine. Then Section 2 is satisfied. But if the state law says you have to show a clear intention to relinquish a known right, and you also must demonstrate prejudice only in the context of an arbitration clause, then I think the requirement of of equal status under Section 2 of the FAA has been violated. What's happening here is that the Supreme Court is putting arbitration agreements in a preferred class. They are giving special status to arbitration agreements. And if we look at this case and we listen to that argument in any other way, we're not seeing what's going on. It used to be the law that the FAA was intended to protect arbitration agreements between sophisticated commercial parties. And to do that, the law put those agreements on the same footing as all other contracts. We've moved now so far beyond that, that in any context, in a commercial context, in a consumer context, in any context, the Supreme Court now seems to think that arbitration agreements have some special protected status above all other contractual provisions. And that's the only way you can understand what's happening in this case and what happened in the argument. There's no other way to understand what was going on. I mean, even the liberal judges on the court got lost in this debate about does Section 3 apply to substantive law? Is it a procedural question? Is it a state law question? Is it a federal question? None of that matters unless in the back of your mind you're saying to yourself, arbitration agreements are special. Because if you don't say that, you don't get past Section 2. And it's, it's like me and my speeding ticket. Okay, sure, I used a turn signal when I changed lanes, but I was going 104 miles an hour. It makes no sense that we're breaking these things down into these isolated components, except if you recognize that arbitration agreements are, you know, above the law. Thanks for being on the show, Mark. That's Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. 
I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.